This is Pastor to Pastor, a podcast of InnoBTS and Level College. Pastor to Pastor is here to help you lay a biblical foundation for your ministry. Hello and welcome again to our Pastor to Pastor podcast. We're certainly glad that you're joining us again today and we hope that you're doing well. I'm Adam Hughes, and again, I'm here with my colleague and friend, Charlie Ray, as this uh, this uh, session of podcasts have been looking specifically at what is preaching or what is teaching. Just remind everyone of where we've been so far this semester. We started, as we always do, with a look at specific biblical passages in which we've tried to glean principles and truths from that that give us some sense as to who it is that's doing the preaching or teaching, who it is that they're preaching to, and therefore, what can we understand about the nature of of the Bible as it relates to what we do on any given Sunday morning. And then from there, we we kind of took a broader look and and we moved out to theology and we looked at the biblical theology. What does the Old Testament say? What do we see in the teaching of Jesus? And ultimately, we came to this definition and defense for what we believe expository preaching is, or Charlie, what we've argued is pastoral preaching. Mm -hmm. And so what we've done from there is we're beginning to talk about, we've spent some time, if we understand what the Bible teaches us and what the definition of pastoral expository preaching is, what are some ways that we put that into practice? Or maybe a better way to say it, when we practice preaching and teaching, what are some things we need to consider as we do that? And so, Charlie, today, maybe we're addressing a topic that in some ways is It's long overdue, and the reason I say that is you and I have made the case that whereas evangelism is important and recognizing our ministry to unbelievers is important, what we've argued uh, for from a biblical perspective is that what we see as pastoral teaching or preaching is really not done with an aim towards the unbeliever. It's done with an aim towards the church. And uh, so uh, maybe the the belief out there could be, well, these guys don't value uh, don't value evangelism. Mm-hmm. They don't think it's important. Uh, we've tried to say that's not the case at all. But because of that, it seems like when we think about practice, how do we put this into practice? We do need to address address the issue. So how do we think about and understand unbelievers and our preaching, or maybe even more precise for today, how do we think about the presence of unbelievers? when we're doing our pastoral preaching? Yeah, I think this is a big question um, in our day and age because practically speaking, I don't know if this was always true, but practically speaking, um, somebody who's not a Christian, their most likely point of contact with an organized activity of the church, at least, is going to be the Sunday morning worship service. That's what we... I think it's probably a day and age where we push people towards Sunday school. That's what you are supposed to invite people to come to. But practically speaking, normally if somebody invites something to somebody to something today, it's going to be the, the, the Sunday morning gathering, the corporate gathering of the church. And I also think you could probably add in there, if they happen to wander into your church yeah, by that's themselves, fair. That's fair. it's they, not going to probably be Sunday night or Wednesday night or a Sunday school or a, a home group. It's probably going to be the, the corporate worship yeah. gathering. Whether that's because they looked at your website or they saw all the cars in the parking lot or whatever it is, right? So one of the things we do want to emphasize is we're, we're in the practical application section towards the end of the semester, right? 
But we do want to emphasize that the practical application questions have to go back to the definition. So we said the definition of pastoral preaching is the explanation and application of God's Word, that is the Bible, to a specific local church by the qualified and accepted leadership of that church. So here the issue we're getting at is, is that preaching is to a specific local church, <clears throat> so that it is primarily to, to the Christian, right? Well, the question then becomes, does Scripture say anything about when unbelievers would be in the midst of the church uh, that might help us inform in there? And so I want us to take just a minute maybe to look at 1 Corinthians 14. So we, all, we want all of our practice to flow from Scripture. So just real quickly, 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, let me just read a couple of verses. I'll start in verse 23. Uh, Paul says, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So a couple things just to bring out from that passage. It is dealing with the issue of outsiders or unbelievers who are in uh, the the corporate gathering of the church, right? And so we can, you know, quibble about the language. They're there as the church gathers, and they're seeing what's going on. So this is in the context of prophecy versus speaking in tongues, and that's a whole other conversation for another day. <clears throat> you don't want to have that conversation right now just off the cuff, Charlie. I mean, come on. Our <clears throat> listeners would probably be greatly interested in yeah, that. Another conversation for another day, maybe. But again, we have this issue of what about the outsiders? What about the unbelievers? And so at the very least, I think Paul is encouraging the Corinthians and recognizing that as they gathered for whatever reason, there would be some non-Christians there. And so the question is, well, how does that impact what we do? And one of the things I think we're trying to argue for, it doesn't change everything about what we do. I mean, in our day and age, there's a, a large movement uh, within the church that basically sort of gears the entire, you know, what we would call the Sunday morning service towards non-believers, and, and they do so intentionally, right? So what is it that Paul actually says here? And I think if you look at the issue, he's basically saying, if the church is all speaking in tongues, they're going to think you guys are crazy. Paul's making an argument for prophecy over tongues here. But if the unbeliever comes in and, and, and somebody's prophesying, then what's going to happen? In verse 24, you see he's going to be convicted by all and called to account by all. So one of the things that's going to happen is, is that as the, the church is prophesying, whatever that means, that the unbeliever will be brought out under conviction. It says in verse 25, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. So one thing is uh, coming under conviction of sin. The second thing is, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God really is among his people. So secondly, the unbeliever will recognize that God is really among this people. And so I think as we, we think about this topic of the unbeliever and, the, and the, the corporate gathering of the church, we're asking the question, what is the goal if we have unbelievers in our assembly. And I think Paul would point us towards at least two goals, that they would be brought under conviction of sin, and then they would recognize that God is among this group of people. Yeah, absolutely. I think there could be a danger into thinking the goal is to make them feel comfortable, yeah. uh, to make them feel like maybe there's nothing that's different yeah. from me than them. I immediately fit in. And so, Maybe here we are talking about the difference of making them feel welcome versus making them feel like they are actually a part of the group. Yep. 
Yep. We want them to feel welcome. You're, you're welcome here. But being welcome here doesn't mean that there isn't something different about us that's different about you. Because if there is no different, it's kind of like, you know, I always say, if there's not an understanding, and this may be going way too far, if there's not an understanding of sin and what sin is, then can there be understanding an understanding of redemption and what redemption is? And so I think those aren't unrelated issues when we start talking about the goal. The goal's not just to say, we're trying to get you to come back. Mm-hmm. Or, or we want you to feel so comfortable that you already feel like you're, you're in, not meaning there's an in and out, but but as it relates to redemption of Christ, there is a rede- in and an out. Yeah. And I think of a lot of what's fallen under, I mean, of course, we used to, I mean, I still maybe use terms like seeker sensitive or attractional, and those terms are weighted with all kind of different stuff in our day and age. But if you think about this idea of attracting people in <clears throat> through our worship, there is this idea of what you're trying to do is make them feel the same as everybody in that room. <clears throat> so this is why, you know, some churches would start out with a secular song because I fit in here. And, and this is uh, <laughs> this is a delicate balance, right? Because in a sense, <clears throat> if you look at 1 Corinthians 14, I think there is this implicit recognition, I don't fit in here, but then they actually do end up worshiping God because they're brought to conviction of their sin. They recognize the presence of God among his people. And so they end up worshiping God, uh, not because in some senses, right, they feel the same as everybody. And, and I think this is in some senses the difference between hospitable, being hospitable to Correct. people who come together right. with us versus hoping that they leave feeling like I'm just, you know. I'm fine. <clears throat> yeah. I guess that's what I'm trying right. to get to. You're, you're fine. You're fine as you are. Yeah. And that's uh, hospitality versus you're you're fine as you are. I'll I'll tell you, when I pastored, it was not unusual. And I I can see why someone would tell me that has a different perspective than me. And a couple things here that I might have been wrong to do this, but it was not beyond what I would do in a regular practice to stand up and say something like, like not point them out, but say, if you are here today and you're not a member of the church, or maybe you aren't even a follower of Christ, You've never professed faith in Christ as your Savior. We want you to know that you are absolutely welcome here. Mm -hmm. We are glad you're here. We're excited that you're here. At the same time, we do invite you to watch and observe what we're doing because there is a distinctiveness about who we are and what we're doing. And so we're glad that you're here to see it. And it's almost like I'm not pointing them out or singling them out, but I'm I'm saying to them in a way that they can self assess and go, I am simply observing today. In some ways, I'm not really participating. Mm -hmm. Because if we do believe what's happening in that moment, which goes back to our definition, we're talking about the gathering of the church. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the other side of what I would say to that. What I'm not saying is, is it wrong for your church to have some type of uh, open door in some way, some event, some activity, some process of reaching out to unbelievers or getting unbelievers to come and do something. No, clearly I'm not. We absolutely believe in evangelism. What I am saying, and I think what we are saying is, if you have said what you do on Sunday morning is the gathering of the church, then you have to understand by our definition, there is something specific that's happening there today. Mm -hmm. And because of that, that's what gets into this idea of uh, the goal is not necessarily to make them feel like they're they're fine or already a part. You know, I, I think, I think what's happened, Charlie, and this is probably a conversation for another day as well. 
I look out sometimes, and I've been guilty of this. So we've said this a lot, right? Like, I think sometimes we say something, and it sounds like we're judging everyone else. But I say it from my own reflection on my, on my own ministry. I think at times I've confused my ecclesiology mm-hmm. with my evangelism strategy. Mm-hmm. And not that there can't be... We're, actually, what we're arguing for here is there's a recognition that you might have unbelievers among the church, but your ecclesiology and your evangelism practice aren't... And by ecclesiology, I mean the gathering of the church aren't mm-hmm. precisely the same for the same goal, yeah. biblically speaking. Yeah. One of the things I was, I don't know if accused of is the right way to say it, but <clears throat> because I tried to hammer home the point that the gathering of the church is for the church, one of the criticisms I got sometimes was, well, you don't even want people to come, <laughs> right? You don't even want there to be unbelievers here. Or, you know, you, you just wish nobody else would show up or something along those lines, or even maybe you're trying to drive people away. And I, and I think that's, I mean, hopefully it was a misunderstanding of what I was trying to do, but it does go back to this issue of um, that the, the gathering of the church really in a lot of contexts really is viewed as being for unbelievers. Right. That when we gather, it actually is for unbelievers. And you can even hear guys who'll say, you know, don't be so selfish that you want this time to be about you. You know, don't you care about evangelism because, you know, you're so selfish. We ought to care about the unbeliever. This time is for them. And, and I think what we're trying to say is it's okay to have a time that is about unbelievers. Absolutely. And, and proclaiming the gospel and some sort of evangelistic ministry. But you better have a time Absolutely. that is about the church for the feeding of the church with God's Word. And I think how we label it or title it and how we describe it matters. Yeah. I've had some people say, like, do, do, do you really think Sunday morning should be the time when you do that? And I said, well, I mean, you, you got to decide in your—I mean, there's nothing— uh, that more sacred about Sunday morning at 11 than there is, you know, I guess any other day of the week other than Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ than five o'clock on Sunday. But what right. I've argued is then if, if Sunday morning is going to be your main open group that's the evangelistic uh, arm of your church, maybe don't call it worship and yeah. don't call it the gathering of the yeah. church because I do think that matters. I've, I've made the point, and I think this is just pressing on what you're saying, and we've probably talked about this before, but made the point, if that's what you do, so your main gathering is an evangelistic event, you're, you're, let's say it's on Sunday mornings, right? And you'll hear people literally say this, that you know our main gathering is for evangelism and we do discipleship in small groups. That's a, that's a refrain that a lot of churches intentionally practice. <clears throat> well, in a sense, you know, I, I'm not necessarily wanting to fight that, but here's what I do want to say. Well, then whoever's standing up in front of that group on Sunday morning is an evangelist, not the pastor Correct. of the church. And whoever's in your small group then becomes... <clears throat> they are the pastors. Exactly. Right? They are shepherding the church. They're the ones who are doing what we're talking about. Exactly. And As so we've seen from Scripture, <clears throat> yeah, and I've argued right. from Scripture. And so if a church wants to go that model, okay, I'm not necessarily going to fight you, but just understand what you're doing. And now we go back to last semester and the qualifications for pastoral ministry leadership. And all that would apply. All that applies to those you know, small group leaders, whatever they are, Sunday school doesn't matter, you know, and and that's not usually what those churches are actually doing. Right. right? And I kind of have made the same case. Someone said, well, are you against the Sunday morning being the main evangelistic gathering? I said, not at all. The question I asked back, but you're calling this guy the senior pastor. Mm -hmm. And I said, then the question becomes, 
when does he get to stand up before his church and do mm-hmm. what a pastor's supposed to do right. if it's not Sunday morning? Right. You know, I just want to say one more thing, and I know we probably, you had two points today. You didn't do the Good Southern Baptist thing. You'd have three points, Charlie. I had two points that you mentioned, and we're talking about one of them, the goal as it relates to unbelievers. But let me say one more thing before we go on to the, the second point here. I, I don't want to misquote him, so Dr. Shaddix, if you happen to, for whatever reason, which I don't think you ever would listen to this, I hope this isn't a misquote of what I've heard you say, but uh, I did, I, I, several years back, I wrote a chapter on the relationship between discipleship and, and, and the, the, the platform of the pastor, the, the primary, the, the, the public teaching, preaching mm-hmm. time. And one of the things that Dr. Shaddix wrote, I think it's in the book Progress in the Pulpit, is uh, we do have to understand that today the place that most people begin the discipleship process so the role of discipleship or the role of preaching, teaching to discipleship is more than likely the, the public gathering of the church. Yeah. So what he was making, he was making the arguments as, as that you started with, I think he was saying, not that we aim it towards unbelievers, but we, we do know more than likely how is an unbeliever going to begin the discipleship process. It's probably going to be in this day and time in the large group setting. Well, and I think that, so now to, to get even the next step of practical application, right, is so what do we do about that? Because, and, and you've hinted at this already, but you are saying, like it or not, there's going to be unbelievers there, right? We can say all we want that this is for the church, and we may be right about that. But especially in our day, in our day and age, it's not just a happenstance that some unbeliever might be there, but it's probably a very likely scenario in a lot of our churches at least. So maybe we can press in a little bit more about what does that mean for our preaching? I know you hinted already at sort of addressing unbelievers and, you know, talking about how we're glad you're here, but we want you to see. um, But as we're sort of doing our expository preaching, I'm just curious, any other thoughts on ways that we can maintain that distinction. Yeah, and I think there is something to be said. I, I, maybe I'm, I'm bleeding over to a podcast that we will do on application. Uh, two things come to mind, and, and you didn't precisely say this, but I think this is what you're getting at. We do have to keep in mind, Charlie, what is success? Mm-hmm. And I don't think we've really defined that yet. Maybe this podcast isn't the day to do that. But, but the problem is if if the success if success is just getting them to come back mm-hmm. and that's all it ever is is just getting them to come back then all of a sudden i, I do get afraid that the tail wags the dog mm-hmm. and all of a sudden the pragmatics will begin to influence our practice which influences our philosophy which influences our theology and not the other way around so I think one thing, and maybe this isn't as practical, maybe this is still the- theoretical, but I think each individual pastor, before they get in that moment, they have to in some way set the parameters of what they determine is success. I'll just say for me, it's not whether they came back, but to some extent it's whether they heard the mm-hmm. truth yeah. and heard it in a way, and we'll come back to this in a moment, that was applicable to them. And we'll talk about what I mean by that in a moment. And then the other thing that I like to think about success is if they do come back, why maybe? Why are they coming back? Yeah. And what is beginning to happen in their life? Let me borrow from Shaddix for a moment, Dr. Shaddix for a moment. Is the discipleship process, and gosh, man, we could get into that, mm-hmm. beginning in their life. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the issues that you're you're getting at there is, and one of the other things I was always kind of kind of accused of was, 
um, being two anti-numbers, you know, and the, and the stereotypical answer to that is every number represents a person, right? Okay, fair enough. But this question of what is success is tremendously important. And, and you know, I've talked about doing a whole semester on this question at, at some point, possibly. But I, I think, yes, we have to ask the question, what is success? And, and, and too often, our metric of success has been pretty much numbers. Now, the answer to that is not necessarily throw out numbers Correct. completely, right? But it is to say there needs to be some context to those numbers, right? So, and, and my question back to that is, yeah, numbers matter. But what if what if the numbers every week are just is just showing the continuously uh, dead in their sins person yeah, coming back yeah. over and over and over again, and nothing's ever happening, so, so nothing's me, ever changing? So let me put it this way. I mean, the context of the numbers would be, are we having more sheep gathering each week? Are we having more goats gathering yeah, exactly. each week? Right? Yeah, or, right. Or, and again, even there, you know, this is where we have to take into context passages like Amos and, you know, Isaiah chapter 1 where God, you know, says, stop singing those songs. Stop offering your sacrifices because you're doing so in hypocrisy. And so we can, if, if we're only looking at numbers, we can create this hypocritical uh, stench in the nostrils of God worship experience, quote unquote, right? That's not a worship of God and is completely unpleasing to him. And, and I know this is, number one, maybe overused, and number two, maybe not It's exactly the same situation. I, every time we talk about this, I have a hard time, especially even as it relates to unbelievers and what is actually success and the goal. I have a hard time not thinking Jesus in John 6. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what he ended up saying, and the crowds leaving, and then he looks at his disciples and say, "Are you leaving too?" Yeah. And their response is this: and Peter speaking for the group, kind of this tremendous profession. Where else will we go? Who has the words of life? Mm-hmm. So I, I do think I do think that's something to be said. This is you love when I use horrible analogies. <laughs> so let me just use a horrible analogy, okay? I, I, kind of like you know as it relates to sexual purity. If you wait till where you're in the heat of the moment to determine what's what's the boundaries, mm-hmm. uh, look, I've been married for 20 years, but if I can rewind 22 years, if I'm waiting to the heat of the moment to define those boundaries, what's the likelihood that I'm going to stay within the boundaries that I would have mm-hmm. uh, in my right mind or way of thinking defined? So I say the same thing for pastors. If you wait till the moment, till you wait to the pressure, you wait to what's going around you to define success and what you're trying to accomplish on a Sunday morning and what you think is God-honoring and biblical as it relates to unbelievers, I just think you run the risk there of being driven a whole lot more by pragmatics than the mm-hmm. Word itself. So I'm not taking a shot at anyone other than just to say one more time, just, just think through what that is before you get into your practice. I think, too, the issue of intelligibility, we need to talk about that for a minute. There was a trend a while back about how, you know, in the corporate gathering of the church, not to use all these churchy words. So you can't talk about justification or sanctification or, you know, fill in the blank with some other, you know, $5 theological word, whatever the phrase is, right? And so here's the issue there. One of which is, I mean, we are discipling the church through our preaching, right? So if we never go in depth, the question then becomes, where are they going to go in depth? And if your answer is always Sunday school, then we're right back to the issue of, exactly. well, okay. The, They're no, their so, pastor. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're performing that pastoral function. So I think the issue of intelligibility from 1 Corinthians 14 is something good for us to remember. Not to say that we don't go deep as it were, but to say, think about an unbeliever have I presented this in a way that they can understand? 
Um, so I think that's a helpful perspective to take on it. The other thing, and, and I, this is not necessarily related to preaching, but one of the things at our church that we do that I think helps with this is we take the Lord's Supper every every week. And so one of the ways we respond to the preaching of God's Word every Sunday is um, is by taking the Lord's Supper. So well, well, how does that relate to this topic? Well, in essence, every Sunday that gives us an opportunity to distinguish between <laughs> those who can take the supper and those who can't take the supper, right? And, and so in other words, um, every time we, we have the opportunity to say, you know, listen, if you're not a Christian, don't do this. There's no benefit in you eating this cracker and drinking this juice if you're not a believer. And we say at our church all the time, if you're not a Christian, we, we ask you to take Christ and not this bread and this juice, but to trust in Christ. So that's just another practical way for us where every time it's getting us the opportunity after the preaching of the word to make those distinctions and say, you know, not, hey, we wish you guys would leave, but we want you to understand that there is a difference here. Again, one of the quick criticisms you would get, well, no, I'm not, that's not arrogant, right? It's not an I'm better than you are, but it's a, I'm a sinner as well, but I've trusted in Christ. And it's actually an invitation for them to join Correct. the actual, Correct. the actual in group. If right. I can say, and it that we're way. saying just like in First Corinthians, the unbeliever begins to worship. We're saying we actually do want you to do this. Yeah, with exactly. Us. However, here's what it looks like for you. And to here's do this. how you do it, right. and the only way you can do it. Right. Which kind of gets to what I was going to say, and I think this does relate to intelligibility, and mm-hmm. the First Corinthians fourteen situation. I, this becomes, if, if you take this the wrong way, it seems like I'm just saying a go- of your preaching, of your teaching, a gospel presentation on the end. But if you understand what I'm saying about the Word and what I mean about preaching, preaching that's not what I mean at all. Charlie, I actually believe everything we do in a worship gathering as the church Taking the Lord's Supper, prayer, uh, giving of the offering, the sermon, the, the, the Word itself, I believe you just hit at it. From an intelligibility standpoint and from a connection standpoint, there is an application to the unbeliever, but every week there is one and only one application to them. Mm-hmm. And it's repent and trust in Christ. Yeah. I mean, that is literally it. So uh, people have asked me, so uh, you're preaching... Ephesians chapter 5, husbands and wives, what's the application of the unbeliever there? I mean, this sounds arrogant. I'll be careful how I say it, but it's almost like, see this, see this marriage that functions the way it's supposed to, that's in Christ and displays Christ. You want this kind of marriage? You've got bad news and good news. The bad news is you can't have it. The good news is you can have it, mm-hmm. but it starts first with you trusting Christ. And I know we have to be careful how we say it because it can come across arrogant. Yeah. But essentially, I am saying that is the way we connect yeah. those things yeah. to the unbeliever in the room. Yeah, and I think we probably need to wrap up. But just to use an example you just brought up, I think this is an interesting way for us to think about it. So even take, taking up an offering, right? So traditional SBC life, you pass the plate, whatever. Well, churches may or may not do that, right? But so one of the things that ends up happening is some churches will say, we're not going to do this because it looks bad to the unbeliever, they feel pressured to give, blah, 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 this kind of stuff. And I, and I guess what we're trying to say is that might not be the best thought process <laughs> because you really are there, you know, for the church. And so you need to be thinking about, in a sense, what's best for the church. In the context of thinking about what's best for the under, uh, the church, we then think about how do we communicate this to unbelievers. So even in in taking up an offering, sometimes I think it's okay to say, if you're not a Christian here, 
don't think by giving anything this gets you anything with God, or we're not asking you to give anything. Even like with the Lord's Supper, we're saying instead of give, we don't want you to give today. We want you to trust in Jesus. Um, and just thinking about um, how do we make all of this make sense to the unbeliever? Absolutely. As opposed to how do we gear all of this around getting them to come back? Exactly. I think that's where we run into a lot of the trouble. So, absolutely. Well, Charlie, this has actually been great, very helpful. I think I think it's I hope it's helped the the listener and and those out there preparing for pastoral ministry and in pastoral ministry again to hold this balance of not being against evangelism and against the unbeliever gathering, but what that means and what what that looks like in light of our biblical pastoral preaching and teaching ministry. So thank you again for this time and leading us through it and helping us think through these critical issues. As I say all, uh, all, the, all the time and every week to our listeners, we certainly are glad that you've been with us again today. We pray for you. We pray for your ministry. We're thankful for you, and we hope this has been helpful and encouraging and edifying to you. As always, we hope you have a great rest of your week, and we hope you'll join us again next time. God bless. Thanks for listening. For more resources on pastoral ministry, visit us at faithfulpastor.com. And to learn more about training to become a pastor, visit us at nobts.edu.